Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, would it make sense for Alberta to leave the Canada Pension Plan instead of its own version? Turns out it just might. Also, City Council's budget woes, a call from three councillors to make some dramatic changes. Plus, is Canada's foreign policy toward Israel changing? A controversial vote cast by Canada at the United Nations. Obviously, this uh, cabinet, new cabinet announced today, comes uh, at an important time in the country where there's uh, a lot of uh, division. There's quite a, a fracture at the moment uh, in Confederation. So uh, whether this prime minister and his government are able to address that remains to be seen. Uh, we mentioned uh, the appointment of Seamus O'Regan to the position of Natural Resources Minister Jim Carr, who is going to be kind of a almost like a Western ambassador uh, for the government to kind of be a voice for the West. You got Christia Freeland, who's going to take over what appears to be now a kind of beefed up portfolio of intergovernmental affairs. Uh, and then there's the question of uh, Canada's uh, fiscal position. Uh, Bill Morneau remains uh, as finance minister. But what is going to be their focus going forward? There's been a lot of criticism, and I know our next guest has uh, raised a lot of that, that criticism, that we really haven't seen a focus on competitiveness. And I think that's one of the issues that, that um, folks out here are concerned about. Where's the emphasis on making us competitive? And certainly when it comes to oil and gas, uh, there's, there's cause for concern when it comes to, to our competitiveness. So there's some questions there. I, I think as a consequence of a lot of this frustration, there are a lot of conversations happening in Alberta about how can we uh, take greater control of our own destiny. One aspect of all of that the Alberta government seems to be looking seriously at is the idea of uh, opting out of the Canadian pension plan, the Canada pension plan, and setting up our own provincial pension plan, which provinces are entitled to do. Is there a case to be made for that? Well, joining us uh, for more on all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program uh, Dr. Jack Mintz, President's Fellow of the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. Jack, great to have you with us. You're welcome to the program. My pleasure. Uh, Just some thoughts from you on the uh, Cabinet announcement today, and anything stand out to you? No, I think, um, you know, there were a number of things that were leaked. Uh, I was not surprised uh, by many of the changes. I think probably the most interesting one uh, from a... Uh, Alberta perspective is uh, the appointment of Christine uh, Christian Friedland as the deputy prime minister, who I understand is going to have some role in intergovernmental affairs. You know, she comes from Alberta. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Liberals didn't elect anyone from Alberta, um, so this is uh, kind of a bit of a uh, maybe a, uh, a way of trying to make up for that, uh, which I think uh, can make sense. I am a little concerned about the choice for the Ministry of Natural Resources, uh, Seamus O'Regan, although he does come from Newfoundland, which is a good thing, uh, but he hasn't had exactly a, a stellar um, time at uh, Veteran Affairs, which he was at earlier on, and, no. and, uh, and, and Indigenous Affairs. And so uh, we'll have to see how well he performs in this, this one. Uh, the Prime Minister did say, following the announcement, uh, one of the first orders of business is going to be this this tax cut that they talked about during the campaign. But uh, you know, some of those bigger issues about Canada's competitiveness that we've talked to before, talked to you before about. Uh, do you think it's going to be more of the same from this government and this finance minister? Oh, I think so. I, it, it, you know, when you even look at this uh, uh, particular tax cut, which uh, you know is to just basically increase the basic exemption for everybody except for. Those uh, with um, 
incomes between, uh, I forget the numbers exactly, I think it was something like 140,000 to 220, whatever the number was. And, uh, uh, and and those people are going to get clawed back. In fact, uh, there was no announcement or a statement what the clawback rate is, but I estimated it to be around 4%, which is like raising the marginal tax rate on this group of uh, individuals at the federal level. They, they would be a, 90, a 29% um, uh, marginal tax rate, roughly, and uh, so they'll be at 33 with this clawback of the, um, of the increased pension or uh, basic uh, exemption. So... Uh, you know, again, you know, this is the cost of redistribution. You know, you try to aim things at the lower level, but then you you have these extra marginal tax rates uh, that are applied, and in fact, that's one of the problems in the whole system. In fact, people don't realize that actually the highest marginal tax rates aren't at the upper end, but it's at incomes like thirty and forty thousand dollars, where people pay their personal income taxes, but then if they earn an extra dollar in income. They lose some of the benefits that they are getting from from the government, and so uh, because they get clawed back uh, at those ranges, and so you have, for example, a marginal tax rate in Alberta for uh, at around thirty eight thousand dollars, seventy percent for a you know uh, a worker with um, you know with two kids, and and that's because of the clawback of child tax benefits, both at the federal and the provincial level, as well as some other benefits. Uh, let's talk about the idea of an Alberta pension plan, and, and you got a column uh, today's uh, Financial Post on the, the potential benefits of, of going down this path. How do we assess the question of, of whether this is advisable for Alberta? Well, I have to admit, uh, you know, before I got into this, uh, I had a view that I um, wasn't sure it was such a great idea. Uh, oh, really? and, and part of that goes because it was discussion about 20 years ago about Alberta creating its own uh, Alberta pension plan. But at that time, uh, you know, what people were paying into the plan in Alberta and the benefits that they were getting uh, at the same, you know, at the same time were roughly matched. Uh, there wasn't a huge difference. And so, it, um, you know, you, you have all sorts of complexity involved with, you know, people moving. And so, like, if someone moves out of Alberta and they go to another province like British Columbia, Alberta will still cover the, um, you know, their, you know, their, the Alberta pension plan payments that uh, they have to be dealt with. And, of course, if someone moves into Alberta that, you know, worked in another province, uh, then uh, the CPT would have to cover those people. So you end up having to track all that, and it gets more complicated. Um, But today I think the story is a lot different because uh, Albertans are paying about a little bit less, but roughly $3 billion uh, into the system, um, more than what they get back uh, in terms of benefits. Uh, partly that's because of the age of the population it's younger uh, than other parts of Canada, uh, but it's also uh, maybe also due to Alberta's relatively high employment rate, which is still, despite the economy, is still higher than a number of other provinces. And so uh, as a result, if you go through the calculations, which this inside um, uh, AIMCO report uh, came out with uh, last week, uh, instead of uh, employers and employees paying uh, a 9.9% contribution rate or payroll tax uh, that uh, that some people would recognize, um, they would end up paying uh, 7.2%, which is a pretty significant drop, and it would it's about 28% reduction, which means that uh, employers would be will be encouraged to hire more people, and employees would be able to get a tax rate, have more cash in their pocket, and be able to spend more, which of course might be good for the province as well. 
two arguments I've seen uh, against the pension plan, Alberta pension plan, or at least advise and caution. One of them being that Alberta's demographics today might not look anything like Alberta's demographics 50 years from now. And the, the other point is about return on investment, that can AIMCO do as good or better a job than the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board? What, what about those two points? Uh, well, I think on the on the first point, uh, the AIMCO report uh, did take into account that uh, you know the number of people that are going to be you know working um, is going to be you know proportionately smaller relative to the people number uh, who are going to be retired down the road. Um, the the question is is whether those numbers have changed since uh, the last that they were computed. Um, there was an actuarial report done for CPP going back to 2015. Uh, which um, AIMCO had to use. It's the only numbers available. Uh, but I think now we're going to have to go, th- you know, I think if anyone jumps into an Alberta pension plan, uh, it's going to be, you know, one's going to need to look at the actuarial num- uh, numbers again mm-hmm. uh, to see, you know, uh, whether that will hold up. Uh, as far as, uh, you know, uh, what what could, you know, end up happening, uh, you, know, I, you know, we don't know right away. So that's why, I, you know, in my article I was, Someone cautionary saying that uh, you know this is still going to need further scrutiny uh, in terms of the calculations to see whether this is a good deal for Alberta or not in the yeah. long run. Um, but uh, you know, but I have uh, a feeling that even after you do a more careful assessment, uh, the numbers you know may be different. You may maybe not have as much of a benefit uh, as one thinks, or or maybe there'll even be more. Uh, uh, but uh, you know, I have a feeling it's not going to change too radically. Um, the other issue about whether AIMCO could perform as well or better uh, or worse than um, than the uh, CPP. Uh, CPP has um, performed relatively well, no no question. Although it's also had very high administrative costs, yeah. uh, in fact, higher than the Quebec pension plan, and um, and the Alberta pension uh, AIMCO may may do just as well. In fact, it would get larger. Uh, it would have more opportunities as a result of investing around the world, and so it may very well perform better or just as well as CPP. And, and that, of course, uh, you know, depends on, on, on what you think, uh, is uh, how, you know, how good people are in terms of what they do in, in, um, you know, at, at AIMCO. And so far, the record has been uh, fairly good, and uh, there's no reason not to think that... Uh, given that they can operate at lower costs, they may actually even do better on a net basis uh, than CPP. I mean, it's interesting. As you say, there may be a solid case to be made that this is good for Albertans, but it's also the kind of decision that is going to have an impact outside of Alberta, that if Alberta is not a part of the CPP, uh, that's something that's going to get noticed by other Canadians, isn't it? Oh, it will be. I mean, it could lead to somewhat small increase, uh, you know, in CPP, Payments, except Quebec won't be affected because they have their right. own Quebec pension plan. Um, but Alberta does have the right to, with, from what I understand, uh, they have the right to uh, withdraw from CPP as long as they keep the, uh, the general benefits similar to uh, to CPP. Um, and so uh, it's just a matter of what the contribution rate would be. And uh, and in fact, Quebec has a higher payroll tax than CPP. Uh, but these calculations that Inco did suggest that. Uh, that perhaps uh, an, an Alberta pension plan could actually uh, provide the same benefits to the to the CPP at a lower cost, which I think is a consideration that I think is really important from the perspective of the province. 
And I guess there's the other question. I mean, as I understand the provinces are free to opt out, but there would still need to be some kind of negotiation with Ottawa if we were going to demand uh, that those assets within the CBP that are ostensibly Alberta's, that they, they get transferred over. Well, it depends on how you uh, deal with the liabilities, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, just to, you know, for example, suppose you start the Alberta pension plan rate from a new and people who contributed to CPP over the years uh, will get CPP benefits paid to them uh, from CP from the investments that they made. Uh, just that from, let's say, uh, 2020 or 2021, whenever the APP starts, uh, then, uh, you know, the, the payments would then come from, uh, you know, from the contributions made to the APP after that point. So, in other words, the liabilities would match the, um, you know, with the assets of the, uh, uh, you know, of, of the Alberta pension plan, without any, you know, explicit transfer to be made. Uh, but you know, it's 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 going to be uh, more complicated because, you know, the investment income has been building up in in the Canada pension plan to actually support, um, you know, kind of um, uh, payroll taxes so that they won't increase over time uh, under the current what's called pay-as-you-go pension plan system and uh, so we've been able to stabilize it <clears throat> under the old system at 9.9 percent the payroll tax will go up uh, for cpp because of the expansion of cpp which also has to be considered um, in whether you well, where it wants to go on its own to do that kind of calculation but the main point is that um you know that uh uh, there may be some of the investment income that's been built up in CPP to help keep payroll taxes in the future uh, down. Uh, some of that actually Alberta may be entitled to, and so there would have to be a negotiation. Some important points to consider. Dr. Mintz, we'll leave it there. Appreciate okay, the insight, as always. Thanks for joining us. Okay, bye-bye. Jack Mintz, President's Fellow of the School of Public Policy, University of Calgary. So his thoughts on the cabinet shuffle today and also his thoughts on the merits of Alberta withdrawing from the CPP. You can read his thoughts at financialpost.com on that latter point. Coming up Monday, budget adjustments at City Hall. And uh, obviously, look, there's there's a big challenge for city councilors to tackle when it comes to uh, trying to find cost savings, trying to hold the line on taxes and trying to address the, the problem that's been shifted on to small business owners uh, with the uh, the drop in assessments in the downtown core. So, so there's a lot to fix here. Obviously, there's additional pressure as a result of the recent provincial budget uh, and concerns about services like police and, and fire. Uh, today, three city councilors uh, joining together for a call for a 5% cut across all city departments, with the exception of essential services. Joining us to talk more about uh, this call and why they think this could work. Very pleased to welcome to the program one of the three, Ward 2 City Councilor Joe Maglioka joins us. Councilor, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks, uh, Rob. How are you doing? Doing really good. So uh, this this is kind of setting the stage for those conversations on, on Monday. What, what kind of decisions need to be made next week? Well, we have to make uh, some tough decisions, and uh, it is going to hurt a little bit of the administration. And uh, the bottom line, uh, we're only asking for 5% of the $4 billion, and it's not much to ask for. And uh, every time we ask for a budget reduction, the administration, including the mayor, always comes up with, we're going to cut fire, police, 911, and all essential services. Well, you know what? There's a lot more to the city than just those four 
uh, departments. So we dug deeper this uh, weekend because we got our budget notification stuff on Friday, and they only give us less than a week before we tackle the budget. And you got to go through like $4 billion worth of stuff, which is not fair. So we worked hours, like hundreds and hundreds of hours in the last couple of days and weeks that, uh, to come up with a solution where we go through every line item and we found 5% reduction in the majority of the stuff, myself, Councillor Sean Chu, and Councillor Farkas, where we said, you know what, we can eliminate the budget cuts for the essential services and let's tackle the, the meat and bones of what's going on in the core of the corporation, where we can find about 50 extra million dollars to save. And that's exactly what we did. Uh, so you you asked the you got an outside an outside person to take a look at this right an accountant uh, we had an accountant yes uh, and so what what was that accountant's conclusions you know what I bet you if you guys spent more time on this if they allowed you to give you more time just like they do like at the provincial level you get like uh, two weeks and uh, you drill the administration uh, with the minister about budgets if we had more time I bet you we can do even a lot more than just fifty sixty million dollars at this present time. Uh, so uh, your your conclusion from what the the accountant found is that this is this is doable. Absolutely, and you know what? At the end of the day, it's not really much. It's fifty million dollars out of four billion dollars. I talked to a, a business owner yesterday at the uh, Grey Cup luncheon. And he said, "Joe, you know what? If you guys asked me, and I have a little business worth about a million and something, if you asked me to reduce five percent, I could find that in a heartbeat." And I said, "Well, so it won't be much then for the corporation to find." He goes, "No, it shouldn't." Uh, well, presumably there's, you know, if you went department by department, maybe there are some that you could get more than 5%. Maybe for other departments, 5% would, would really be tough. So uh, why not go department by department? Why, why do you see it as kind of a, an across-the-board cut? Well, they, we did go by department by department. We went okay. right from cemeteries right to parks. And we found, you know, we do not want to raise any more business taxes. I had mm-hmm. a guy here in my office this morning. He said, Joe, we're paying in 2019, we're paying $69,000. And now I got my assessment at 149000 He goes, how many more burgers do I got to flip to make the difference? I go, you know, I feel sorry for you. And you know what? And I'm going to try my best and my colleagues, uh, Councillor Farkas and Councillor Chu, to make your life better than it was yesterday. And that's our whole goal is to do that. And if administration does not want to play with that game, you know what? Then we get issues because we're fed up with people getting more tax to death. Well, yeah, we're hearing some real horror stories, Joe, from from uh, businesses around Calgary and, and what's happened with their assessments and, and the resulting tax bill. It's uh, it, it's a very serious situation. It is very serious, and that's why the three of us are tackling it. And I hope my colleagues can support that on Monday come budget deliberation. And you know what? I, I believe they will because they're pretty smart individual people, and uh, they know what's going on out there. And if they don't, they got blindfolds on. Uh, so, if indeed there's there's 100 million in savings to be found, what what would that translate to? What what could we do on the tax side? Well, what we're going to do is we're trying to balance it up to a 50-50 split between uh, uh, the uh, non-res and res. That's our goal is to get there. If we want to do that today with no cutbacks right now, it's going to raise about another couple of hundred dollars or three hundred dollars more a year or probably a monthly to bring that to a 50-50 split. But if we can come up with a, a solution that we can cut back 5% uh, in, uh, in uh, departments, a rollback, that we can balance that, and it'll be a 50-50 split between residential and non-residential, so it's an even playing field, and everything will come down. It'll, bring, it'll lower the taxes. 
so a five percent cut does not necessarily mean uh, that that salaries are going to be touched. What, what would no, the impact? No, we are not. We're talking yeah. like staplers, okay. <laughs> new staples, and all that kind of stuff. But whatever the administration, whatever the head department can think of, the five percent in their department can be cut. That's all we're asking: is administration go out, do your job, and make sure you can reduce five percent in your department. I don't care cemeteries, park, roads. Uh, uh, communications, whatever the case is, find 5%. That's all we're asking. We're giving you right now the uh, the direction. We're giving you a, a base of what we found. Just start looking into it a lot deeper and get it done as soon as possible. But that, that could possibly include layoffs then. Well, it is what it is. You know, Husky did it. Uh, everybody else is doing it. Why should we spare it? No, that's fair. I mean, just, just to be clear, that, that that may be a result. Okay. Yeah. Um, now, the departments that you feel should not be affected by this, what, what are the essential services that, that you would exempt? I would exempt police, fire, transportation is important, transit, and 911. That's it. Because every time we ask for a budget reduction, that's all we always focus on. Police, fire, transportation, and 911, which is playing with the heartstrings of the citizens. And there's a lot more to cut other departments than those central services that people need, people live by, and they save lives and they help people out. Uh, why, why is it that those departments are often singled out for cuts? Well, because you play with the heartstrings of people. So then we have to increase the budget because everybody goes around saying, oh, we got to lose 3 or 4% because the, the police needs it and budget needs it, uh, police needs it, fire needs it, 911 needs it. Well, you know, at the end of the day, we did not ask for you to do the cut on the central services. We asked to go deep in the meat and bones of the corporation and find those the, the, the savings. What about the impact of the provincial budget? And that, that's going to have some impact on, on police as well. But how is that, how is that affecting the, the job that, that city councils well, have to you do? Know, that was only a few million dollars. I think it was about $9 million, the case may be. You know, we can find that internally. They can find it themselves. But we don't need to add, add more burden on them to cut more taxes or more uh, budgets on them. All right. So uh, budget uh, adjustments begin on Monday. So it does, is this something that, that needs to be voted on? Are you planning on presenting a motion or how is this uh, going to play? Uh, yes, we're going to give the uh, public uh, uh, their opportunity to speak on the budget right now. And then once the public uh, um, view is over, the public uh, presentation, then we're going to present our, uh, our motion. And uh, hopefully uh, council can support it and ask for a 5% reduction in the whole corporation to reduce another $50, $60 million with the taxes and put on the savings to businesses and homeowners throughout Calgary. Uh, so you think we can actually get to some tax reductions? Absolutely. Yeah. You know what? And there's more. to we can, we can cut a lot more, too, Rob. Let me tell you, we just did not have the time because the administration gave it to us 11th hour, and, and it seems like it's a pattern. And uh, we got to stop this kind of practice. We got to get at least about two or three weeks beforehand when the budget comes out, where we can start questioning our CFOs and then our administration about line by line how we can cut more and more and more. All right. Well, looking forward to the debate next week. Council Maglioka, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Well, hey, thanks a lot. And I hope uh, my uh, colleagues can support this uh, motion that Councillors Chu and Farkas are putting forward. And uh, call your councillors and support it. All right. Much appreciated, Councillor. Thanks again. Thanks, Rob. Bye. All right. Joe Maglioka, City Councillor for Ward 2. Uh, so today, uh, Councillors Maglioka, Farkas, and Chu uh, issuing their joint call.
uh, for a 5% spending cut. So they're bringing forward a notice of motion to cut non-essential city spending by approximately 5%. And they say the resulting savings would allow council uh, to actually not just hold the line on taxes, but actually reduce the tax burden. They say it's doable. I, I hope that it is. And I think a lot of people, especially a lot of business owners, would love to see this. Well, we mentioned the uh, cabinet, a uh, new cabinet announced today by the prime minister and it includes uh, somebody new in the position uh, of foreign affairs. Uh, but there's a, another conversation to be had aside from from the cabinet changes about what's going on with Canada's foreign policy, specifically our approach to Israel. Story today from the National Post, Canada has reversed course and voted in favor of a U.N. resolution condemning Israel for its, quote, occupation of Palestinian territories. The move marks a further departure between the U.S. and Canada on their posture toward Israel and a potential reversal of long-standing Canadian foreign policy. By the way, this resolution was put forward by, uh, among others, North Korea and Zimbabwe. Uh, so what... <laughs> What's going on here? Um, so certainly some, some concern being raised about what this might represent. Uh, joining us uh, to talk more about it, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, uh, Shimon Fogel, who is CEO of the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, CIJA.ca. Uh, Shimon, thank you so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. It's great to be back with you, Rob. Well, how surprised were you, first of all, when, when you heard about this vote? Um uh, we were um, very taken aback. Uh, we had very little advance warning. Uh, typically, uh, on any policy issues, uh, the government uh, will reach out to us before the fact, um, benefit from whatever perspective we can share, and uh, throw that into into the decision-making process. In this case, uh, we uh, were advised of it uh, before the vote was cast, but after the decision was made. Uh, and, uh, you know, that alone is, is, is uh, an aberration from, from typical uh, procedure. Right. And I, I think from Canada's perspective, it's been more about the general principle of, of resolutions that single out Israel as opposed to the, to the specifics of, of any given resolution. What, what's been our approach at the United Nations on these issues? So um, you're exactly spot on. Uh, that's exactly what the calculus for Canada has been. Uh, it started with uh, Paul Martin, uh, 2002, uh, when uh, he and his foreign minister, Pierre Pettigrew, initiated um, a change in Canada's approach, recognizing uh, that the UN as an institution was uh, increasingly being used as uh, you know, a bat to uh, bash Israel. Uh, and uh, the view that he adopted uh, and that was uh, uh, given real substance by Stephen Harper uh, when he began his term as prime minister uh, was to reverse course and not allow Canada's um, uh, profile and credibility to be used to entrench uh, this uh, ritual Israel bashing uh, routine at the UN and its various agencies. And the first Trudeau government um, had pledged and lived up to its commitment 
to continue and follow suit. So we have 15 years of Canada saying, no, we're not going to uh, be party to the hijacking of the UN uh, simply to be used as an instrument of bashing Israel. Uh, and that led to uh, Canada's consistent and cross-the-board rejection of all of those resolutions. And you're absolutely right. Even though there are some specific uh, particulars of this resolution that are objectionable. For Canada, it was about that whole annual charade uh, called the Question of Palestine. 20 different resolutions that are brought forward each year simply to um, deepen the narrative uh, of anti-Israel isolation and delegitimization that our adversaries have been trying to advance. Well, and you alluded to it. I mean, there are some specific concerns about this specific resolution. What, what to you was so troubling about it? Well, so um, the real the real story is that this is one of those twenty resolutions, and by voting in favor of it, Canada has undermined uh, the principal position that it had staked out for the last 15 years. On this particular resolution, uh, there are several elements that are really egregious. Uh, first of all, it refers to the disputed territories as occupied Palestinian territories, which in effect is prejudging the outcome of negotiations. There never was a state of Palestine, therefore uh, you cannot uh, objectively uh, characterize any of the territory as Palestinian. It may be that a future Palestinian state will uh, be formed on part of that territory, uh, but Canada has always taken the position that it should not prejudge the outcome of negotiations. So that itself is really problematic. Uh, the second part is in um, casting all of the expectations uh, onto Israel to advance peace without recognizing the provocations, the incitement, the anti-Israel activity, let alone uh, the constant raining of hundreds and hundreds of missiles onto Israeli civilian uh, population centers uh, over the last number of years. So it, it really gives a pass to Palestinian leadership to contribute to uh, or offer any uh, uh, concessions or considerations that would contribute to uh, uh, a track of, of negotiations leading towards resolution and peace. Uh, now, the statement from uh, a spokesperson for the Foreign Affairs Minister uh, said that Canada remains opposed to, to resolutions that single out Israel. Uh, says, in keeping with Canada's longstanding position, is it important at this time to reiterate our commitment to a two-state solution and the equal rights and self-determination of all peoples? So th th it seems to imply that, that nothing has really changed. So if our approach hasn't changed, how do we explain this vote? Well, so that begs the question. If nothing has changed, then why change your vote? Uh, Canada's trying to be both the hound and the hare here. Um, it wants to maintain its opposition to the UN being used uh, as an instrument um, to isolate and delegitimize Israel, but it also wants to signal a whole range of things, whether it's opposition to American policy uh, or concern about uh, uh, where the two-state solution uh, is going. Uh, it is actually completely divorced from the reality on the ground. Uh, anybody with even a superficial knowledge of what has been going on in the region over the past number of years would understand that um, Israel does not have a partner uh, to pursue peace. Uh, 
and that any discussion about a particular formula in order to get to peace um, is whistling in the dark. Do you think, and, and we're speculating, but do you think this has anything to do with the government's desire to win a seat on the U.N. Security Council? Are we trying to potentially win votes for that by going along with this resolution? So, Rob, as a Canadian, I take no joy in saying this, but we lost that contest a long time ago, um, easily over a year ago. There is nothing in this resolution that would um, enhance Canada's opportunities to secure a seat on that coveted table. Uh, in fact, um, most have already recognized that uh, Canada may as well drop out of the race because the Europeans um, are going to um, cast their vote for European candidates, uh, namely Norway and Ireland. So there's no possibility that Canada will win. And if they were, if they were to consider this as a possible route to winning more support, they would have started this four years ago. Uh, they didn't because they recognized that this is simply not part of the equation. And the irony of it all, Rob, is that Israel as a country has a better relationship with its uh, with many of its Arab uh, and Muslim neighbors now than it ever did in the past. There is absolute cooperation between Israel and Egypt. Uh, Israel and the Gulf states have opened up um, a huge new uh, uh, initiative in terms of partnership and cooperation. Uh, and similarly with Saudi Arabia, all of it designed to reflect a shared concern about uh, Iran and its ambitions for the region. So the Security Council uh, seat argument is really just a red herring and meant to distract from asking the kind of questions that you are about um, what could possibly be the rationale for Canada to make uh, this decision about a vote change. Uh, so we, we do now have a new Minister of Foreign Affairs, and perhaps there's going to be some period of, of adjustment here as, as the new minister gets up to speed on, on all the relevant files. But how important is it for Canada to clarify as quickly as possible what, what our foreign policy is on this matter? Well, I know the Israelis are anxious to get some clarity. They called in the uh, Canadian ambassador to Jerusalem today in order to express their concern and dismay with uh, Canada's decision. And I know that the pro-Israel community here in Canada, both the Jewish community and the broader pro-Israel community, is anxious to get clarification as well. We um, will be asking uh, the Prime Minister to sit down with us and to walk through exactly uh, what drove the decision uh, and how he can reconcile that with commitments made to the Jewish community during the recent campaign that uh, a Trudeau government would stay the course on policy as it relates to Israel and explicitly undertook uh, to maintain their same voting pattern as has been established over the last 15 years. All right, much more to CIJA.ca. Uh, Shimon, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. Always a pleasure, Rob. All, All the best. best to you, sir. Uh, Shimon Fogel is CEO of the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, CIJA.ca. And I mean, even if you disagree with his assessment of the situation or what our government's foreign policy should be vis-a-vis -vis Israel or the Palestinians, uh, that the government should at least be transparent with what its policy is and if and that policy is if that policy is changing, why it's changing. 
Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.